Well, I don't have to tell you that sickness and death are a part of the human experience. You know it experientially, uh, even this week with Kathy's passing. And scripture confirms that sickness and death are a part of this human experience, even from the very beginning. You remember Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, God told Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That being said, we do try to deny death. Not so long ago, people died at home so often. They were surrounded by their loved ones. Uh, even their bodies oftentimes were prepared by their loved ones. Me and Kate had a, have a friend, a dear friend, an older woman who when her stepmother died, she, she told me the story about how after her stepmother died, she prepared the body before the, the mortuary came and picked up the body. She wrapped the body and she cleaned the body and she prepared it. And I, and I thought to myself when she told me that story some years ago, how strange. But yet, this woman was much closer to death than I have ever been. And she took that opportunity to really honor her loved one by preparing them, preparing her even in death. This kind of thing is very rare in our day. That's because death has been sanitized, you might say, in our day. We've handed it over to the professionals, to the hospitals, to the hospices, and to the morticians. As a result, few of us have even seen someone actually die. And it's likely true that a century or so ago, few had not seen someone die. Speaking about death, one author said, we build coffins that look like plush, oversized jewelry boxes and cemeteries that evoke the peace and serenity of a botanical garden. We use euphemisms to gloss over what we dare not say. All of this is cultural, springing from a heartfelt wish to make death pleasant. But it masks, he says, a profound anxiety that even the prettiest funeral service cannot disguise. I suppose this is why funeral services are such good opportunities for ministry. There's no clearer place to see human vulnerability than in death. I've told my wife when I die, I want the casket here with my body in it. That's what I want. It's a, it's a picture of human vulnerability. There's no cultural artifact better designed to assess human frailty than a funeral service. And as we turn to John 11 this morning, we will be confronted with death. In particular, the death of a man named Lazarus. And while we might not have known Lazarus, while our culture might try to shield us from death, his grave reminds us of the grave that will visit our own. In fact, Far from being abstract, this week we have been confronted with death, the death of a loved one, the death of Kathy. Now, lest we think reflecting on death will bring us down, we should know that reflecting on death will result in the best news ever, which is why we must talk about death. 
It's an access point for the best news ever. And we'll see that in John chapter 11. In fact, look over at, if you have your Bible open, look over at John 11 verse 25, which we'll study next week. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, what? Yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I hope you do. Here we have some of the the most important words ever spoken, ever written down. The very Son of God, the divine Logos, the one who spoke the world into existence, saying, although you will die, yet shall you live. That's profound. Through our study of this chapter, we'll see that God has the power to, li- to deliver us, excuse me, from our last enemy, namely death. Death is our last enemy. That's what Paul says. That's what he calls it. In our message this morning, we're going to just read the introduction to the story of Lazarus. It's in that introduction where we'll take up one of the most qu- challenging questions related to sickness and death, and it's the why question. Why does God allow sickness and death? If God is so powerful, if He's as powerful as He claims to be and we say He is, well, why doesn't He just end it now? Why not flip the switch and end this? Why permit it? Why allow it? Well, as we'll see, in the wisdom of God, He has chosen to use death for His own purposes. He allows it to remain, to abide for a season in order to use it to declare some very important things about His Son, about His power, and about our joy. So here's our big idea this morning. The death of Lazarus gives us three reasons. We'll see three reasons why God allows sickness and death. And these will prepare us to face our last enemy. You have it there on the screen. Now before we get to our passage, I want to make something very clear. It's tempting when a loved one dies, when a person like Kathy dies. It's tempting... to to say something like this when we counsel one another. To say that death is a tragedy for her and her family, but for her it's a good thing. To say that. And I I think we know what we're trying to communicate when we counsel each other that way. But it's not quite right, is it? Is death, is death a good thing? One author captured the problem well, saying, Praise God that he brings good things out of death, but death itself is not a good thing. As we study the story of Lazarus, I don't want you to confuse the good things that God brings out of death with death itself. I'm not calling death good. Death is not good. 
Death is our enemy. You ever heard anyone say something like, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me? Some experience, some sickness, where they came close to death. People speak this way. The person is not saying that cancer is good, but that cancer gave them the opportunity to kind of reevaluate their priorities, right? That's what they mean by that. They're not calling the cancer good, but maybe because of it, they, and they survive, they spend more time with their family, or they aim to achieve some goal, whatever that is. And so they say, the best thing that ever happened to me was cancer. When our loved ones died, when we die, it's true, we will be safe in the arms of Jesus. That is true, and that's a good thing. But that's only half of what we should say to those facing death. In speaking about what good might come from death, we shouldn't be at peace with death because death is an enemy. Death is the result of sin. Sin came into the world and people died. Sin is not good. Neither is death. So, Paul declares, I've already mentioned it a little bit, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, death is an enemy, our last enemy. And until our Lord destroys our last enemy through our resurrection, and fully and finally at the end of days, that's what Paul's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that in the future, the Lord, the Father, will put all things under His feet, under the feet of Christ, and the last enemy to be defeated will be death. There will be no more death in the universe. It will be fully finished, and it is the last enemy. So as we study Lazarus, and you can hold me to this, death is not good. Death is an an enemy. It is an evil. But God makes good out of it. Amen? Amen? So... Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. 
Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this passage here in John 11, we learn about some people that we've yet to meet in the gospel of John. You probably know them if you've been a Christian for any, any amount of time. You probably know the story. It is a, and, you, and you know about Mary and Martha. Their, their stories are some of the most memorable stories in all of Scripture. John kind of assumes we already know them, and he assumes we know some things about Mary in verse 2 there. He says it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. He hasn't told us that story yet, but it was so memorable uh, to the early church and to us, that is, uh, he assumes we already know it. In fact, he, he won't actually tell, it, tell us that story until the very next chapter. And so in chapter 12, we'll, we'll read that story. This Mary has a sister, and her name is Martha, an older sister, and they have a younger brother whose name was Lazarus. Lazarus is uh, from the Hebrew Eliezer, and it means God has helped. And God will, in fact, help Lazarus. All of them are from a village called Bethany. Bethany was located about two miles east of Jerusalem. If you remember our study from last week, Jesus, under the threat of the Jews, escaped Jerusalem, and it says he went across the Jordan. So you can imagine Jesus is about a day's journey over the Jordan, and Bethany is kind of on the way out to go across the Jordan. I don't know if Jesus stopped in Bethany on his way. Uh, he might have. It would have been easy enough to stop in Bethany on his way to go across the Jordan. Apparently, the relationship here is a close one because the messengers come to Jesus and they say in verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That is what the messengers say. The simple phrase reveals the identity of the sick man. The identity, his identity is Lazarus. I think it's touching that such words are offered about people we've heard nothing about. John doesn't even tell us about these people, and yet we, we find out, if we don't know anything else, that Jesus loves this man in such a way that all the messengers need to say is that he whom you love is ill, and Jesus knows instantly who is sick. It reminds us of all the, the friendships and the relationships that our Lord had, of which we had no knowledge. You can imagine all the people that came to know Jesus and experience His life. We don't even know who they are. Thankfully, we know Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Finally, we come to verse 4 where we find the first reason why God allows sickness and death. God allows sickness and death, number one, to declare the glory of of his son. It says that clearly in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, that is when he heard that he was ill, this illness does not lead to death, Jesus says. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This illness is on behalf of, that's what that's saying there, it's on behalf of the glory of God. 
And being on the behalf of the glory of God, its specific purpose is to glorify the Son. That's what Jesus is saying. The illness exists to declare the glory of the Son. Now, what exactly does John mean, Jesus mean, when he, he uses the word glory? That is kind of an abstract word, the concept of glory. When you, when you think of glory, I think when most people think of glory, they think of kind of the brightness that comes from God. Is that what kind of pops in your head first? You think of this kind of visual manifestation of all that he is. This kind of brightness that just comes out of him because his character is so perfect and his person is so glorious. And so it just shines out. That is his glory. You remember when the angels came to the shepherds and announced the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 9. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Right? That, that brightness that is all around this angel and the angels. I, however, I, I don't I think that's true, true enough, but I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here when he talks about the glory of the sun, that this illness is for the glory of the sun, for his brightness, his, his, this visual representation of all that he is. I, I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus means. Here I think he's using glory in the sense of honor. That's what I think Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying that sickness and death have come upon Lazarus in order that the Son might be honored, that he might be revered, that he might demonstrate his worth, his value. That's what I believe Jesus is getting at here when he talks about glorifying the Son. Thus, as a result of sickness and death, we can honor the Son. Now, how is it possible for the Son to be honored through sickness and death? How is that possible? Well, in the case of Lazarus, we're going to have to kind of hold some of our judgment back a little bit because we haven't read the whole story, right? But just spoiler alert, <laughs> Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. That's a little bit of a spoiler alert. That's coming. But, so we're going to have to withhold some of our judgment because we, we haven't quite gotten all, all the way through this. However, in his case, his resurrection will lead to the glory of the Son. If Jesus were, in fact, to raise a man from the dead, well, then he ought to be honored. Don't you think? I think so. Absolutely. And so what's being stressed here, and you think about how this kind of fits the, the overall, overall picture of the Gospel of John, what's being stressed here is that honor is to be given to the Son, to the Son. That, that's the focus. Remember, so much of what we learn in the, in the Gospel of John is really about the deity of Christ. It's pushing forward Jesus and, and de demonstrating all that He is. And this is another example of that. Uh, John Calvin says, God wishes to be acknowledged in the person of His Son in such a manner that all the reverence which he, that is God the Father, which he requires is to be given to his own majesty may be ascribed to the Son. So in every way that we would honor God the Father, we would honor the Son. They're equal in the honor that is due to them, is what Calvin is saying there, what I think the Gospel of John is saying over and over and over again. Yesterday I had a Jehovah's Witness knock on my door, and you know, who wants to deal with this, right? I'm busy. You know, but at the end of the day, what pops in my mind is that we don't have the same Jesus. 
Right? You, don't, you don't honor Jesus like I honor Jesus. And so, no thank you. Until you can honor Jesus like I honor Jesus, the way the, the Scriptures honor Jesus, because He raised Lazarus from the dead, then we can be brothers. But right now I don't have time. Anyway, you get the point. They don't ascribe the same honor to Jesus. They don't see Him as God. They make that mistake. And what Jesus is doing here is He's demonstrating what the Gospel of John is doing is He's demonstrating that they're equal. You remember John 5, 23. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Therefore, this illness, this death, takes place to declare the glory of the Son, to declare that Jesus is to be honored and to be revered as only God can be honored and revered. And so we have here really another proof of the deity of Christ, even in this miracle. And this is all possible because, as Jesus says there, He says, this illness does not lead to death. It does not lead to death. What can that mean? He did die, didn't He? So what does He mean that this illness does not lead to death? Well, what Jesus is saying is that the death of Lazarus will not find its purpose ultimately in His death. You might say it means the ultimate issue, the ultimate purpose of this sickness will not be death. It's not a cul-de-sac. We end in death, and it it leads to death, and it's over. You know, end credits, we're done. Fade to black. No. He's saying there's more here, that this death will lead to something. It has a greater purpose to demonstrate the glory of the Son. What in the world does that mean for us? What does that mean for me and you? What does it mean for those who are experiencing sickness and death? Well, it means that God, the God of the universe has chosen your sickness, the death of our loved ones, death in general, all of the above, to demonstrate, to give us a picture of His glory. Death is, a, is an emblem for His honor, you might say. The sickness and death are declarations of His glory. They're emblem of his, emblem, emblems of His honor and declarations of His glory because He demonstrates power over them. He has power over them and He makes good out of them. And, and that's very abstract. I realize that. That is a very abstract truth. Yet these are the, the very ideas that we have to accept. We have to believe them and we have to reach for them. When sickness and death come near us, if we, if we have no category for why or how God might use these things for our good and for His glory, then when death draws near, we're going to point the finger at God. It's going to lead us to, to, to grieve without hope. But we see, we see something more. We see His work even in these hard things. Paul saw God's work in his suffering, in his pain, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember that thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about? We often kind of capitalize on something that Paul says there where he says, my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a fascinating point. 
But Paul also says, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. For the sake of Christ, for the love of Christ, for the glory of God. Because I, I, I can understand and I can see all, who, all that Christ is in the midst of my suffering. As a result of that, it has an emotional effect on him. He says, I am content. It actually bears fruit in his life. And so while it's abstract, it actually does something to us. It allows us to find joy, to find contentment when things are not going as we want them to go as it relates to sickness and death. God doesn't want us to see sickness and death as, I've said, a dead end. Sickness and death are, are not to be understand, understood as uh, blackout curtains. Maybe some of you have blackout curtains in your, in your house. You've used those. It's like blackout curtains, they, you can't see through them. The light can't penetrate through, and so we're in the room and it's dark. Death is here, sickness is here, and we can't see out. We're trapped in it. But sickness and death are like, I don't know, I'm not, I don't know anything about curtains, okay? But they're like thin linen curtains. If there's a word for that, help me. I don't know. But they're thin linen curtains, and we can see through them. Right? So they're hanging in the room. Sickness and death are here. But I see Lazarus. Right? I, I see that there's a plan. And I can look through that pain and see it. I see the resurrection of Jesus. A defeated death. And so, my prayer is that this story... The story of Lazarus might help us to see our sickness and death from a different perspective. And I need that. That we might understand why God permits pain for our good and for His glory. I don't want to take God out of the pain. If I take God out of the pain, then I got blackout curtains. It's no hope. Darth Vader's going to win. This isn't good and evil fighting each other. Who's going to win at the end? That's not what it is. God is in the middle of it, using it for our good. Bless you. In verse 5, moving on. Verse 5, John reiterates the love that Jesus had for his family. He says, verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. I think he gives us this verse because of what the next verse says. So, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It seems odd that Jesus loved them, but he lingers. He delays. Why doesn't he go to them right away? He doesn't respond to the messengers right away. Now, I don't think it's true that because of Jesus' delay, Lazarus died. 
we could put together the days and the, the kind of the timeline of how this all, all happened. I'll spare you from all of that. But it's, it's pretty accurate, I believe, that Lazarus had already died when Jesus received the news that he had died. So it wasn't as if Jesus might have been able to come go make it there and heal him. Lazarus had already died. And so Lazarus is dead, and Jesus delays. He waits two days. He doesn't respond immediately to the messengers. Now, what is the purpose of this delay? Why does Jesus do that? Did Jesus delay in order to make the miracle more spectacular? Oh, I'll, 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 I'll let, you know, I want, I, want, uh, I want people to see how glorious I am, and so I'll let them suffer more. Does God kind of glorify himself on our expense, you might say? Is that what's happening here? I know some have accused God of such things. However, I don't think God is doing that here. I think something different is happening. John has a way, the Gospel of John has a way of reminding us that Jesus operates always on his own timetable. He doesn't operate on our timetable or man's timetable. You, you recall there's a couple different instances that we've even seen up to this point in the Gospel of John. You remember in John 7, during the Feast of Tabernacles, his brothers come to him. Maybe you remember, we studied this. He came, his brothers come to him and they say, let's go to the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus doesn't go. He ends up going, but he doesn't go in response to them. He waits, and then he shows up later. Well, you remember, number two, another thing, uh, another event at the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. You remember, Jesus is urged by his mother to take an action. And you remember Jesus' response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Again, I'm not operating on your timetable. I'm not going to, you know, my family, I'm not going to do exactly what you say. I got this. I'm not going to be coerced. And so here you have in chapter 11, I think that's the same kind of principle that's happening here with Jesus' delay. It is interesting that in all of those examples, Jesus ends up honoring the request of, that, of his family and those people. So he does actually end up going to the Feast of Tabernacles. He does actually help at the wedding of Cana. And he does here end up going to Judea. But he doesn't do it on man's timetable. He does it on his timetable. God will be God. Thankfully, he will come to our aid, and he does. With these two days past... Jesus says to his disciples in verse 7, Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. You remember Jesus had just escaped Judea under the threat of his life. You remember that? We just studied that. The Jews were trying to kill him, so he just escaped. Thus, the disciples respond in verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Is their response having just experienced this escape from danger, the disciples are puzzled. Why would you go back into that danger? So Jesus responds with a kind of word picture in verses 9 and 10. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Kind of a word picture. Now, you know, people in Jesus' time didn't have Apple watches. I'm sure you know that, right? or these fancy Garmin watches that I, that I wear, right? They didn't have those kind of things. And so how did they keep track of the time? 
I mean, I guess daylight would be a good way to keep track of the time. And so you have this kind of rhetorical question that Jesus is asking, are there not 12 hours in the day? Which is, on average, about the amount of hours that are in a day, 12 hours. And so, walking in the day, walking in the daylight, we don't stumble. We can see where we're going, Jesus is saying. And Jesus says there in verse 9, he does not stumble, he says, because he sees the light of this world. Because he sees the light of this world. Well, I think that's a pretty interesting statement in light of what Jesus has already said about himself. I mean, twice Jesus has said that he is the light of the world. And so this phrase shows up again. Jesus is the light of the world, 8.12, John 8.12, and and 9.5, which makes me think that there's some kind of deeper meaning here in Jesus' words. If this is the case, then Jesus is likely saying that people should make the most out of the presence of Christ. He is the light of the world. They should walk in the daylight. He is the light of the world. One day he will be gone, and there will be no way of walking, no possibility of walking or living, as verse 10 says, without stumbling. We can easily apply this to the disciples in their context. There's a sense in which while Jesus is with them, it's daylight and they won't stumble. They'll be safe to perform the works of God, the works assigned to them. Therefore, they can go back to Judea. He's with them. We're walking in the light right now. I'm I'm here. It's going to be okay. We know, however, that the time will come when the darkness of his departure will leave safety inescapable. And we know that especially because we know the end of the story of these disciples. And when Jesus is gone, save two of them, Judas and John, they all died martyrs' deaths. Now, we finally come to the second reason God allows for sickness and in death in verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And so here's the second reason God allows sickness and death, to declare the power of salvation. To declare the power of salvation. Now, you know the word sleep is used in the New Testament in a number of places to describe death. You probably know that. That's what Jesus means when he says here, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And Jesus clarifies that in verses 12. Uh, 12 and 13, 14, the disciples said to him, Lord, if, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, clearly, Lazarus has died. Now, I don't think Jesus describes death using this word sleep simply for the sake of eloquence. I think he's doing something else here and using the term. The point is this, I believe. Death will become no more than sleep. Death will become no more than sleep. Through the power of Jesus, death will no longer be our hateful foe, which is what Jesus is getting at. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, again, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55, death is taunted in that verse. There's a taunt offered to death 
because it will be defeated. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We will taunt death, and therefore death is no more than sleep. Jesus will demonstrate power over death when He awakens Lazarus from the dead, and He will even declare more. He will declare the power of salvation. Now, why do I say that? Well, Jesus tells the disciples in verse 11, I go to awaken him. And it's interesting the way that John records the response from the disciples. They respond in verse 12, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Literally, he will be saved is what they're saying. And so I believe there's a kind of a connection here in this metaphorical language between sleep and the idea of salvation that's offered here. Jesus is using these two. The wordplay suggests that Lazarus, that raising Lazarus from the dead proves that Jesus has the power to save sinners from eternal death. You remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 17, for if the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised and Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If the dead are not raised, if Lazarus cannot be raised, then Christ can't be raised and your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. It's impossible to talk about the resurrection and not talk about salvation. They go hand in glove. Two sides of the same coin. At least that's how Scripture presents them. God allows sickness and death, therefore, to leave, as we're arguing here, an open illustration of His power to save us from that sickness and death, both physically, because we'll get a new body, but also spiritually, because we'll live forever with Him. When you and I stand at a gravesite today, when we think about Kathy's death, We should ask, what difference does it make that Jesus has power over the grave? What difference does it make? The resurrection of Lazarus is not proof that we'll escape death. I'm sure Lazarus had a second death. I don't know how else to say it. He wasn't raised to live forever. But I wonder what he thought about as he approached that second death. Escape from his first death gave him confidence to believe the words offered to Mary, or Martha, excuse me, later in this chapter. Whoever believes in me, as we've said, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die is what I think the author of Hebrews is getting at. You remember Hebrews 7.25. I love this little verse. He is able to save, it says, to the uttermost. So I think what, what that's getting at there, it's not just here and now. He can save completely to the uttermost, all the way. I don't have a vocabulary large enough to find another word. As far as you can imagine, he will save us. And it says he will for all those who draw near to God through him. We come to the Father through the Son. 
What difference does it make that Jesus has power over the grave? The difference between life and death. The difference between heaven and hell. That kind of difference. I suppose you might say all the difference in the world. God allows sickness and death to declare the glory of the Son, number one. Number two, to declare the power of salvation. And number three, to declare the joy of belief. To declare the joy of belief. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, Jesus says, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I take that with him there to mean die with Jesus because remember they talked about the the Jews coming to kill them. And so Thomas is saying, let's go do this. If Jesus is going to die and go raise Lazarus and go help him, well, we'll die too. We think of Thomas often as doubting Thomas, right? You know, the end of the Gospel of John, you have that story there where he doubted that Jesus was raised from the dead, and so he gets kind of a bad rap. But here, I mean, he's misguided, but he's courageous. He wants to demonstrate his love for Jesus. And so in some ways we can't fault him, even if he's a little mixed up, you might say. The third reason, though, this to declare the joy of belief comes in verse 15. It's where we find that reason. Again, Jesus said, for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Two words kind of focus on that word glad and the word believe. Jesus was glad that he was not there. He had joy that he wasn't there. That's kind of shocking. I know it's hard to believe, but keep in mind, of course, Jesus knows all things. He knows the end. He knows what's coming. Here he's simply saying that Lazarus' resurrection from the dead would do far more to strengthen the disciples' faith than a healing would have. If Jesus would have just healed this man, that would have been great, but it wouldn't have strengthened their faith in the same way. And so that leads us to the second word, believe. So he's glad that he wasn't there, that they might believe. Now certainly the disciples already believed. They were his disciples, I'm sure they believed. Here we learn that our faith can grow. This idea of growing in our faith. I don't know if you think about your faith maybe as a kind of a light switch, and I think that's appropriate. There's a point in your life where you don't have faith in Jesus, and you, you turn the light on, and then you believe. And so you were out of faith, and now you're in the faith. And that's good. We should think of faith that way. But, to take the illustration a little further, our faith is more like being on a dimmer switch, right? It's like, okay, it's on, but then it's growing. And through our experiences, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And so that's kind of what I think Jesus is saying here, that you would believe, not that they went from a state of unbelief to belief, but there's something about seeing this miracle that would move them to another state of belief, more so than letting him just to get sick and be healed would have or might have. Now Moore says there are new depths of faith to be plumbed, new heights of faith to be scaled. 
Do you see sickness and death as opportunities for the Lord to grow your faith? It's a straight-up question. Bruce Ware says, God often designs affliction and pain and suffering, he says, to strengthen our faith even when we are being faithful. That's interesting. Even when we're faithful, God lets us walk down these hard paths. He says, to cause us to trust Him in even greater ways when we already have hearts of trust. We already believe. But yet God is is doing something. He's allowing something. He's permitting something to come into our life, some pain, so that we would believe in an entirely new way, with a new depth. Where it goes on to illustrate his point through the life of Jesus, and I think that illustration is probably a good place for us to move to close this this lesson. In in Hebrews 5.8, it says... Although he was a son, speaking of Jesus, although he was a son, it says he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience. That's a really interesting statement. How in the world can Jesus learn anything? In what sense would he learn? He knows all things, he's omniscient. Jesus certainly didn't move from a state of unbelief to a state of, or excuse me, a state of disobedience to a state of obedience like we might. You know, your kids are, you know, it's like you're outside of the circle of blessing. (laughs) I I need to shepherd you inside the circle of blessing. It's like, was Jesus ever outside of that circle of blessing and God needed to, to move him inside? I don't think so. So in what sense then does Jesus learn obedience? What does that look like? Is it possible that Jesus learned obedience by giving, by being given over, passive, by being given over to greater challenges to that obedience? With an increasing demands of obedience. Not that he ever failed. But he learned obedience every day that he walked forward. And he needed that because there would be a moment, right, when God would finally say, the cross. He needed all those moments to learn obedience. And so in that final moment, as his prayer says, my father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, he says, not as I will, but as you will. All those moments, all that suffering, all that perseverance leading to that moment on the cross. As a man, Jesus obeyed the Father and as such had to learn obedience by being tested in harder and harder ways. Of course, the supreme test was the cross. If this is Jesus' experience, are we above this? Are we beyond such things? That God might use 
suffering in our life. God has allowed sickness and death in order that we might learn obedience. God has allowed such valleys to strengthen our faith. And seeing such things, God in His infinite wisdom says here, He can smile at them. Again, let me be clear, not the death, but what he makes, but the good that he makes out of it. That's what he smiles at. Death is our open enemy. But God can take that enemy and make good out of it. And so he can say, I was glad that I wasn't there because I'm going to do something in your life. I'm going to stretch you in a new way. And you're going to have greater faith in me through this experience. Just true in all of our lives. When, why then does God allow sickness and death? That's the question of this message. Well, three reasons, right? To declare the glory of the Son, to declare the power of salvation, and to declare the joy of belief. It's my hope that this truth will prepare each of us to face our last enemy, death. You know, I love John Piper. He's written some of my favorite words, and he's written some of my favorite poetry as well, and he has a poem by the name of Job, and he ends his poem this way, and I'll read it. I think it's fitting as we close. Behold the mercy of our King, who takes from death its bitter sting, and by his blood and often ours, brings triumph out of hostile powers and paints with crimson earth and soul until the bloody work is whole, he says. What we have lost, God will restore, that and himself forevermore. When he is finished with his art, the quiet worship of our heart. When God creates a humble hush, and makes Leviathan his brush. It won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. Amen. Joel.